Good morning. If you haven't already turned to Mark, the ninth chapter, please do so. We'll be in that uh, first uh, 13 verses of Mark, the ninth chapter today. Keep your thumbs there. We'll come back to it in just a second. Friendly reminder, we're in a series called Don't Go Solo. We're in week five of this seven-week series. It's a series all about the premise that we've been learning from Scripture, that is that God intends us, that's all y'all, as we talked about last week, to do life together. I reminded you that it's the second person, East Tennessee plural. Somebody told me, I, I talked about y'all, I talked about all y'all, but I left out Ewan's. So when I say that God intends us, it's Ewan's, all y'all, to do life together. We're talking about the New Testament uh, concept of fellowship, of togetherness, and that he calls us to be a community together and not separate he calls us to be a community of, of believers, a fellowship together, and not solo lone rangers. That's why for us at First Christian, we talk about celebrating, cultivating, and communicating. We talk about cultivating growth among ourselves in both a horizontal kind of fashion between you and I together as the body of Christ and also with God. So, so this whole series is about that second C that we talk about cultivating growth so that together... Ewans, all of us, can enjoy the life that God intended for us. Last week, we talked a little about what it means to be together as friends. And we said that, that our relationships must be marked in those friendships by mercy and not sacrifice. Those are the words of Jesus. And, and, and sacrifice is that concept of, of us creating among ourselves impossible scales and man-made, human-made criteria for our relationships and friendships that often have little or nothing to do with God's law of unconditional love and mercy. Today, we look at being together in what we're calling today transformation. God wants us to be a transformed people who are changing together in this journey of life. He didn't intend to create us plant us in the gardens of our lives like he did Adam, and, and then have us just sit there. That was not God's intent. He gave us bored Adams of the world a, a friend, a helper in the task of life, so that we could carry on the work to which God has called us. He called us to be together in transformation. You see, God created us, you and me, not to be like, bear with me for a second here, not to be like mushrooms, but to be like maple trees. You see, mushrooms sprout up overnight. And in a matter of just a few days, they wither away. Mushrooms are one-and-done plants that, frankly, taste gross, and why would anybody want them? But maple trees, maple trees grow gradually while learning to withstand the forces of nature that threaten their very existence. Maple trees result in a majestic fruit-bearing tree that lasts for generations. And let's face it, maple syrup's a lot tastier than mushrooms. At least, I'm the only one in my family who doesn't like mushrooms. It's the same with people who follow Christ, too. Unfortunately, many of us wither away and don't give much thought or care or concern or intentional weight to the idea that you and I are meant to grow. We're meant to continue to become the people he made us to be. We're meant to stick around like maple trees 
We who follow Christ are meant to grow, to grow deep, to grow roots, Scripture talks about. To be like maples who over time are transformed into people not just who are able to withstand the difficulties and the forces that life bring to us, but also people who are fruitful and productive for the cause of Christ in the world. We are called to produce the fruit of the Spirit we talk about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is one of my favorite verses. And it talks about this kind of transformation that we're talking about today. It says this, We, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. You see, Moses went up to the mountain of God with a veiled face. But we, this side of the cross, approach Christ with unveiled faces. Behold the glory of God and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's transformation. That's transformation to which we are called as Christians. It is a bedrock assumption of being a human that we grow. From the day we're born, our bodies are growing until they stop. But likewise, it is a bedrock assumption for the Christian that we are meant to grow. We are to grow from people who love sin and are in rebellion against God into people whose love for what is good and what is right, characteristics that drive from God's nature, becomes the motivating factor for who we are and what we say and how we operate with one another. But even though those are fundamental bedrock truths about being a human and Christian, it is also a bedrock truth about us that change comes hard. Change comes hard. About 350 years ago, there was a shipload of travelers that landed on the northeast coast of America. You may have heard of them. They're our ancestors. The first year, they established a site for the town where they would live. And the next year, they elected a town government. The third year, the town government began planning to build a road five miles westward into the wilderness. And then in the fourth year, the people tried to impeach their town government because they thought it was a waste of public funds to build a road five miles westward into a wilderness. Who needs to go five miles westward anyway? It's funny. Here were these adventurous people who had a vision to see 3,000 miles across an ocean and to overcome great hardship, even to the point of death for many of them, to get to this place. But in just a few years, they were not able to see just five miles out of town. They'd lost their pioneering vision. With a clear vision for us of what we are meant to become in Christ... There is no ocean of difficulty too great for us. There was a missionary society that wrote to the famous David Livingston. You may have heard of him. He was alive in the 1800s in uh, South and, and Central Africa. This missionary society wrote to David Livingston and said, Have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to know how to send other men to join you. Livingston wrote back, if you have men who will come only if there is a good road, I don't want them. 
I want men who will come if there is no road at all. God is looking for men and women who will come if there is no road at all. Because the pathways of our lives, the roads we are taking in our lives, are a process of transformation if we live under the cross, whereby we are becoming increasingly the people He's called us to be. Before we dive in here, let's pray for just a moment. Father in heaven, we know that you are calling us to forge new roads in our lives. We know that you are calling us as a body to continue to grow so that we increasingly demonstrate your likeness in our lives. Help us to weed out that sin that we know is there so that we would overcome that and have victory so that we would continue like these disciples in Mark that we'll read about to grow, to transform, to become the people that you called them and us to be so that you can achieve your mission on earth here through us. That privilege, Lord, is far beyond our greatest and wildest imaginations, but we want to be a part of that privileged process of bringing people to you. Talk to us through your word now as we look at your scripture. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's read together Mark 9 again. This is 2 through 13. Mark 9, 2 through 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And as he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had arisen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Verse 13, But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. Here in the 21st century, 2,000 years after Jesus' death and his resurrection, which we celebrate in two weeks, we know that, that, that this is a foundational event, this transfiguration. It's a big deal because it's an event that declares the divinity of Christ. And it shows that Jesus has authority, all authority, in earth and on heaven. Even more authority than the Old Testament scriptures represented here in the law and the prophets say. That was the way the Old Testament people of God spoke about the scriptures. They called them the law and the prophets. So here, in Jesus appearing above the law, 
He represents that he is above the keeper of the Old Testament law, Moses, and the prophets represented by the greatest prophet, Elijah. This foundational event, which we now call the transfiguration, it declares that the kingdom of God is now on earth. And it is established with power, as Jesus had just finished preaching in the 8th chapter. It says on this high mountain with this inner circle of James and John and Peter, he probably takes them up to what is now called Mount Hermon or maybe Mount Tamer, but it's, it's thousand, Tabor, excuse me, Mount Tabor, uh, T-A-B-O-R. He, he takes them to this mountain that's probably 9,000 feet high. And so they're up there, and into verse 2 it says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And into verse 2 it says, He was transfigured before them. His figure, his, his body, his face was changed. It was, it was transed. That prefix trans means across or beyond. Or generally it means change. It's like transposing or changing music to another key. Transposing music or a, or a transatlantic flight over the sea. Or even a, a transam that goes across America, I suppose. It's, 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 it's this idea that something has changed. So there they are, high up on this mountain... Wondering, okay, okay, Jesus, what you got for us? <laughs> what, what's going on here? And his whole countenance begins to change. And in verse 3 it says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And to top it all off, verse 4, Moses and Elijah show up. Now, at this point, as you can imagine, the disciples are probably a little bit confused. They're probably not a little freaked out. Verse 5 says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here, right? <laughs> Let us make three tents. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. Peter's running around trying to set up tents as memorial as memorials of this cool thing that they're experiencing that they don't really understand. And James and John, I can imagine, are probably just sitting there on the top of this mountain, looking up at Jesus with their mouths gaping wide open, maybe speechless. I think I'd feel a little bit like James and John. Wide open mouth gaping in disbelief at what's going on in front of me here. Then verse 7, a voice comes out of a cloud. A voice comes out of the cloud and says, This is my beloved Son, whom I love. Listen to Him. I can imagine after this scene, Peter, James, and John probably just said, Okay. I'll listen. Can you imagine the, the nerves and the craziness of that scene where, where heaven, divinity, perfection, eternity becomes a picture in front of them? 
And then suddenly in verse 8, everything cool and miraculous that's going on just disappears. And it's just Peter, James, John, and Jesus. It says, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Standing there on the mountaintop, just like normal. Sort of normal. You've just seen Jesus changed before you. You've just seen perfect, infinite, beyond your most incredible thoughts of Him, eternity come to earth. Which means that for Peter and James and John, normal, normal is no longer normal. You do not see a vision of Jesus and remain normal. You do not experience what they saw and stay the same. Can anyone really be normal after that? And so the situation for them is a little bit confusing and to top it all off, Jesus says, shh, keep this quiet until the resurrection. What? Resurrection? They start asking questions in verses 9 through 13 because they don't understand what, what is going on with rising from the dead. Why did Elijah come first? And what is going on here? So Jesus begins to teach them. He starts to teach them. If you've read and you know your New Testament, you know it takes a long time for Jesus to get through to the disciples. They are slow on the uptake. They're kind of bewildered and clueless, but Jesus keeps teaching them. They get down from the mountain, and after seeing this kind of a miracle, they must be thinking, well, let's get a little bit of that mountaintop miracle action down here on earth. And so they go and they try, in the very next scene, they try to, to cast a demon out of a boy and, and they can't do it. They can't take that mountaintop experience it and reproduce it in the valley of their own lives. At least not yet. At least not yet. You see, the process of growth takes time. Jesus even has to repeat himself to the disciples time and time again. He keeps talking about this experience on the mountaintop and the resurrection. And, and time and again he's saying, I'm going to tear down the temple and then I'm going to build it up in three days. I'm going to tear down the temple. I'm going to build it up in three days. He keeps having to repeat this and repeat this until it gets through to the disciples. Because growth, even for the first believers, just like us, is a process. It takes time. Because once we experience not just what happened here in the transfiguration, but what happened on the cross, normal cannot be normal anymore. It changed these disciples. Just take Peter, for example. Peter goes from being a bumbling coward who says relatively dumb things and sort of shoots off at the mouth to the apostle who spread the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. He helped gospel spreading uh, work with Paul go through the entire world. And as church tradition holds, he died 
just like Jesus by being crucified. And it starts with moments like being on this mountain with Jesus where he experiences the divinity and perfection and character and nature of God here on earth and in his own life. And he grows from that point to become the Peter that we know as the one on whom Jesus says, on you I will build my church. Friends, this kind of Jesus that we're talking about here at the top of this mountain is a Jesus that we cannot domesticate. This is a Jesus whose glory far surpasses and far outweighs our weak and puny thoughts of him. If he is the Son of God whose white-hot glory is like what these disciples saw, then how dare any one of us believe that we cannot continue to become the people he created us to be? Friends, the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in the likeness of his Son. And the glory of the gospel is made evident in his Son here on this mountaintop. That's why Jesus' question to the disciples in Matthew 16 is so important when he says, Who do you, who do you say that I am? That question is no less crucial, no less important to us today. And yet we domesticate, we lessen who Jesus is, we like a Jesus we can manage. We like a Jesus who can be a teddy bear and a grandfather to us. When he's a Jesus that you cannot keep in your little box. If we even began to understand a slight portion of the reality of the glory of the Jesus that we domesticate. We would never give any weight to the idea that he cannot continue to change us. There are lots of different kinds of Jesuses going around the United States and in the world today. There's the Republican Jesus. You may have heard of him. He's against tax increases and he's against activist judges, but he's for family values and he's for owning firearms. That's the Republican Jesus. Then there's the Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and Walmart and he's for reducing carbon footprints, and, and, and he's, he's for printing money. There's the therapist Jesus. It's another little box into which we put this Jesus. The therapist Jesus helps us cope with life's problems and heals our past and tells us how valuable we are and not to be, not to be so hard on yourselves. There's the Starbucks Jesus. This Jesus drinks fair trade coffee and loves spiritual conversations and drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. There's also Touchdown Jesus. Touchdown Jesus is the one that athletes talk about after a big win. He helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians. And helps, I guess, determine the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's Yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential. To reach for the stars, climb the ladder, buy a boat. There's Platitude Jesus. This Jesus is good for the Christmas specials, for the greeting cards, for the bad sermons, 
is good for writing on the inside of cards and inspiring people to believe in themselves. And then there's like we see on the mountain, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they'd been waiting for. The son of David, Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity. He's the goal of the Mosaic law. He's Yahweh in the flesh. He's the one who establishes God's rule and his reign. He's the one that heals the sick. He's the one that gives sight to the blind. He gives freedom to prisoners, and he proclaims good news to the poor. The Lamb of God who came away to take, to, who came to take the sins of the world away. This Jesus Christ is the creator of the world who came to the beginning to begin a new creation. He embodied the covenant, he fulfilled the commandments, and he reversed the curse. That Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent in the beginning. The Christ that was prefigured to Noah in the flood. He's the Christ that was promised to Abraham. The Christ prophesied through Balaam. The Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died. And the Christ promised to David when he was king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as the suffering servant and predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. That Christ is not a reflection of your current or my current mood or the projection of our own desires. That Christ is Lord and God. He's the Father's Son, the Savior of the world, and the substitute for our sins. And as we see in the Transfiguration, He is more loving, more holy, more wonderfully terrifying than any of us ever thought possible. So when life is hard, when you are sure you cannot change, when you are sure there is no way out, when you are sure there is no hope, when you are sure that this is all there is, how dare we believe the lie that Jesus cannot make us into who he wanted us to be? How dare we shortchange a Christ who demonstrates to his own disciples that we can continue to become who he created us to be? And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, it is our desire to be the people you created us to be. We know, Father, that we think and act and move and behave in ways that assume that you cannot do what you told us you would do. Forgive us for living in the lies 
in the lies that uh, distract us from being the people you called us to be. We ask, Father, for the power of your Holy Spirit to be among us now so that we would live lives that are transfigured lives that are changed from who we were to who we know we are becoming through you. Father, make of us a community of people who, like Peter, James, and John on the mountain, will take the truth of your coming and establishing the kingdom down to the valleys, to the everyday parts of our lives. Give us the power of your Holy Spirit to do that and help us to proclaim that glory to the world so that we can participate in what it means to be a transforming community. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you are looking for a church home and would be interested in being part of what we're looking to make here, a a community of people who are continually being transformed because of those experiences like Peter, James, and John on the mountain and like we've experienced on the cross as he died for us. We'd like to invite you, as we stand in just a moment, to come forward. Or if you're looking to name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior publicly and to to say to the community of believers that I want to be a part of this transformative community and you've never been immersed, if you've never been dunked in the waters of baptism so that you are dead and yet raised to life, We ask that as we stand just a moment, you would come forward.